0: This is an ABC podcast. So, the dark triad of leadership is Machiavellian, so that really manipulative type leader, the narcissist, or the organizational psychopath, um, which are manipulative, superficial, really all about getting their own outcomes tend to lie and manipulate and really cause extreme amounts of harm. Ring a bell? So this is at the extreme end of destructive leadership. It's pretty much perceived as a bit of a continuum from that softer sort of derailing leader who's overdoing their strengths to the toxic leader who has you working on eggshells and then at the most extreme end, the dark triad leaders.
1: Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on this Working in Life, we're returning to an earlier episode that digs deep into the dark triad of destructive leadership, how to spot it, and what needs to change. So how do we know it's not just our manager having a bad day or a bad month, that it's actually destructive leadership at play? Dr Vicki Webster has seen this type of leadership firsthand in her research and has literally written the book on it.
0: The common factor is that it's behaviour by a leader that is regular over time and causes harm to subordinates, uh, employees, and also organisations. There is some debate as to whether intent is needed to be a destructive leader, but the perception that I've taken is that if it causes harm, then intent is pretty irrelevant because there's plenty of clueless, abrasive managers out there that are leaving a trail of destruction behind them
1: how common are these only about 3
0: to 5% of the management workforce so about 60% of managers typically display some sort of derailment but only about 3 to 5% at that really extreme level however in any one organization um these types of leaders tend to recruit mini-me's. So you can start with a small amount of narcissistic leaders and over a period of time, it grows because they attract like with like.
1: It sounds contagious in a way. It can be, it can be. And then of course, the
0: whole culture becomes quite toxic.
1: Now on the flip side, there's a light triad. What's that? So
0: the light triad is very much focused on humanism. So uh, Kantianism, which is all about um, treating people as an individual in their own right, not as a means to an end, showing compassion and kindness in the humanistic side. So all those three aspects of compassion and kindness and humanism uh, is part of the light triad.
1: Ah, that feels a bit better. So how common is the light triad? <laughs> well, I guess it's what we all aspire to, isn't it? It's what
0: leadership <laughs> development programs aspire to create. And we're hearing a lot in the media at the moment about the need for leaders to be more compassionate and kind. But of course, when we're under pressure, low in resources, lots of demands on outputs and results, then it's much harder to stay in the light triad.
1: So in your book, you describe four styles of leadership that are problematic and destructive. Can you please explain them for us?
0: The first one is laser fair leadership which is a very passive, aggressive style of leadership. So that might not automatically come to mind as being destructive, but leaders who abdicate decisions, won't have the difficult conversations, actually abdicate on any commitments they make, creates quite a destructive environment. And it, it really encourages bullying between the team and people have a lot of uncertainty. No one's clear on their role. So laser faire is also quite a harmful style of leadership. The next one is supportive disloyal leadership. This one is where they might be quite supportive of their subordinates, but negative to the organisation. So the organisation might demand a certain course of action if they feel that that won't be good for their subordinates. They'll support their subordinates instead and just not do what the organisation needs or they'll derail resources to their own ends rather than to the organisational good. Derailed leadership has negative behaviours both towards the subordinates and towards the organisation. And tyrannical leadership actually has negative behaviours towards the subordinates, but actually in the service of achieving organisational goals. So you hear about that often when there's corruption or fraud or particularly bad behaviour in the organisation to achieve whatever the results are at any cost, irrespective of the harm it causes to the workers.
1: Vicky wrote her book documenting destructive leadership and its consequences with Paula Brough.
2: I'm a professor of organisational psychology at Griffith University in Brisbane, and I'm the director of a research centre called Work Organisation and Wellbeing.
1: How big a problem is this?
2: So it's a huge problem. The issue is that most workers will experience some kind of unpleasant relationship in their workplaces, whether it be from their leader or colleagues. And whether it escalates to be a major problem or not is debatable, is, is not always the case. But the issue is that most of workplace mental health stress claims in Australia are submitted, about 41% are submitted based on the fact that there's adverse relationships, adverse conflict being experienced in the workplace to such an extent that it causes workers serious distress. So that's the main issue, really. So it causes lost productivity. It causes people to disengage from their work. It causes people a high degree of turnover. And it causes, you know, people are off on long-term sick leave because of the bad behaviour of their leaders or their colleagues. And actually, it's a problem that's growing rather than shrinking. So it's a huge concern, actually.
1: And is there actually an industry where destructive leaders are found more often than not?
2: It's a lot more common in many of the public services, primarily because in the private sector, people will leave more readily. You know, um, in the public service, people try to to hold on to their job, to their career. So they're reporting high levels of distress. And also in very hierarchical organisations and very male-dominated organisations, there tends to be greater levels of workplace conflict So we talk about some of these organizations having a very masculine culture, which spills over into the whole long work hours, very competitive, fighting for resources with each other. So that sort of organizational culture tends to promote bad behavior of all kinds. And primarily, that's where many of the cases of destructive leadership are found.
1: And Paula, over these 20 years that you've been researching this area, how much change have you seen?
2: Yeah, there's been a huge change. So 20, 25 years ago, there was a huge stigma about identifying any issues related to mental health, to your supervisor, to your workplace at all. In fact, one of my early experiences with the, with the police service back then was the um, I wondered why the peer support officer always ate lunch by himself in the police canteen. And he said it's because no one wants to admit they know me or have talked to me. So he always ate lunch by himself just because it was a huge stigma of anyone associating with him, even, you know, socially, informally. So there's been a huge change. There's still a stigma. And some people still choose to seek help privately through their own g p and through their own referrals to psychologists, which is totally fine. But we are seeing, for example, more organizations understanding that they have a responsibility to safeguard employees' psychological health as well as their physical health, so they embrace more of the programs to try and and help workers stay there and work productively. in the long term, it saves them money, so it's it's certainly worthwhile and cost effective. So, that's certainly been one major change that I would say.
1: So, Vicky, how do we address destructive leadership and prevent it in the first place?
0: There's two aspects to look at. One is what do we do in relation to leaders and then what do we do in relation to targets of destructive leaders? So, obviously, the most obvious solution is don't select them in the first place. So, we need very rigorous selection processes. Most of the destructive leaders, particularly at that dark triad end, interview very well. They can sell ice to Eskimos. So you need you need a, a protracted recruitment process like an assessment centre where you're observing people over a number of hours, maybe some profiling. There's a number of profiles now that test for the dark side of personality. And using those same rigorous selection processes, even for your leadership development programs, because often the qualities that derail leaders like being very confident and taking risks and promoting yourself means that emerging leaders that get the notice are often ones that have those more dark side traits. So really rigorous selection, whether it's be for a management leadership position or whether it be for emerging future leaders. The other thing is how we actually build that light triad culture or that ethical culture. How do we build a culture that has more compassion and and bring some of that into the leadership development program. So an awareness that there is a light side and a dark side and some education around that and helping to improve leaders' self-awareness and self-regulation so that, I mean, we all can lead at our best when everything's going swimmingly. It's when we've got pressure in our home life, pressure at work, that sometimes we can move over to our dark side.
1: And how do you actually identify destructive leaders? Is it through a 360 Type feedback process. It can be, although if if you suspect
0: there's a destruct, you've got an issue with destructive leadership. I would not recommend using 360s because typically all the leader does is try and work out who said what against them, and then take uh, action against whoever they've imagined has given them a bad rating. But it, often it is informal um, reporting. People don't want to make a formal complaint, but they'll talk to HR or they'll talk amongst themselves. Sometimes it is employee surveys um, where there's really like, you know, in one particular area, there's very low levels of engagement. Turn, unwanted turnover absolutely peaks under a destructive leader. So if you've got abnormal um, areas like that, that's another way you can, you can see it. Paula, is there other ways you can think of? Yeah. No,
2: and I was just going to say, in many cases, the organisation knows exactly who um, their most destructive leader yeah. is. And this person, because they see the consequences in their team members, and this person, rather than the organisation taking direct action with this person or Training or coaching, this destructive leader just gets moved on to the next division or the next region or the next area of a workplace, and then you see a repeated pattern of um, their team members, you know, falling apart, being unproductive, uh, high turnover, and really the high level of stress claims. You can you can follow the money and tr- and track what's going on. So in many cases, organizations organizations actually know who the destructive leader is, but it's often too difficult or they're worried about trying to do anything about
1: them or removing that leader. And if we can't prevent a destructive leader, can we manage them and make them more aware of the impact of their leadership style?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So like Vicky says, there's two main issues really. If the leader is willing to take on board reports, that sometimes they're just not aware of the consequences, how, how much they're impacting their workers. But we've done some training to make them aware of not just the productivity of their team, but levels of engagement and well-being of their team. And we've showed that with adequate training and awareness um, and proper people management skills really um, a leader can change considerably we've we've had amazing results, but if the leader is not interested, many leaders will say i'm not interested in being a warm fuzzy leader it's or to take too much time i 've got too much work to do, you know so if they're not interested in it, then there's not very much you can do really
0: with that leader. Yes, I think there's some people who are very good individual contributors, you should never be let loose with having direct reports or staff. And so (laughs) some organisations, often they won't take action because the person's got really important relationships or specialist expertise. So another strategy is to move them into a project role or an expert role where you can use their strengths, but they don't actually have responsibility for managing people.
1: And Vicky, can you give me an example of this working in practice?
0: So I'll give you an example Sort of a conglomerate of some of the coaching work I've done, because uh, while broad, broad training courses are very useful at trying to change culture and and get a cohort of leadership that's working more to the light side, if someone's really having difficulty with their impact, one-on-one coaching is probably the best way to go, particularly at the extreme level. So, if I've been working from time to time with narcissistic type leaders, and Initially, their objective will be, I want people to see me differently. So they don't want to change what they're doing because it works for them, but they want others to see them as more collaborative. So you've got to meet them where they are and, you know, they'll often start with strategies, behavioural strategies, where they can be seen to be a bit more collaborative or they'll actually give other people a chance to have a say and really quite basic stuff. And then over time, if they see that works... Um, then they might be more encouraged to try and actually really change the way they interact. And what I've found is where they see the change is usually not at work, it's in their home life. Suddenly they're changing these little behaviours, listening more, not dominating, not, um, not having a tantrum every time they don't get their way and they actually see the benefits in their home life and then they've got more interest in actually changing the way they operate at work as well. So transformation takes a long time, though. It doesn't happen overnight, as you know. Even changing behavioural habits can take six to nine months. So it also comes back to the organisation's willingness in how much they're prepared to invest in a destructive leader to try and transform them.
1: Paula, do you have any suggestions for how we might increase ethical leadership?
2: Mm, yeah, ethical leadership is a real key issue at the moment, and uh, more, it's also called moral leadership. So we've been doing some work in this area around ethical or compassionate leadership in terms of encouraging whistleblowing, for example. And it's it's very similar to the to the light triad that Vicky mentioned right at the start. So being someone who a leader would be an ethical leader if they're high in empathy, listen to their uh, workers, follow through with their uh, team members' complaints or issues, offer support and resources as much as they're able to, but really support that worker in and take, you know, almost go out for bat for them when that worker is going through various organisational processes or complaints, such as a whistleblowing claim and it's a real it's a real uh, hot issue at the moment there's some new measures that have been developed to test uh, managers ethical leadership skills and um it's a growing area for sure it's a real interesting switch that we're seeing this realization that you do need to be more compassionate at work to help productivity of your of your team and your organization but really to safeguard their their well-being and protect their well-being and their mental health. So it's fantastic. We're seeing this switch,
1: I think, in some areas. And Paula, is this a generational thing? Look, there is an old
2: guard who were brought up a certain way and believe that um, mostly because they've been in the workforce for the longest time. So what's worked for them in the past, the, the The way they were brought up, the the behaviours they've encountered during their work life and what's worked for them in terms of promoting themselves upwards. Um, Yeah, there is certainly an old guard who are more likely to be uh, destructive leaders. So we are seeing a more compassionate generation come through, I must say, but it's not black and white. So you can get leaders who really recognise the value of their team and of, an, of appropriate leadership skills. So we are seeing change in some of the old guard style leaders, but um, yeah, it's not black and white at all.
1: Okay, let's do some takeaways now. What would be your advice to someone who finds themselves working underneath a destructive leader?
0: This is an interesting question because the typical ways you would respond to a workplace stressor are not necessarily um, as helpful in the context of destructive leadership. So the first thing I'd say is that avoidance coping, as in taking some leave or avoiding direct one-on-one contact with the leader, can actually be adaptive in the short term to help you regroup and work out a strategy. Mm. Um, A lot of targets don't particularly want to take advantage of employee assistant programs or talk to HR or take advantage of anything that's related to the organisation because of their fear that it will get back to the leader. So certainly seeking that external support, um, professional coaching from a psychologist or clinical psychologist through the GP, as Paula mentioned, or, and social support is so important. Um, so having a venting partner potentially who's not your family and not a co-worker, often I see, I coach a lot of targets and by the time I've seen them, they've vented all around the workplace and it's got back to the leader and they've pretty much shot themselves in the foot career-wise. So, But you do need an outlet. So some sort of venting partner that's not family and not work, social support and professional support is important.
1: What about organizations themselves? What would your message be to them if they do have toxic leaders in charge?
2: Yeah, they will know. I mean, one of the ways, really, we work with organizations is they come to us with their high level of uh, psych injury claims. So if it's costing, if those claims are increasing and those insurance premiums are increasing, which is current, which is the state at the moment, actually, then it's very clear that they'll know where are their problem areas and who's leading that area. So in many cases, organizations know full well what's going on. And it's just a case of whether they actually want to address the problem or put in some more counselling, or some more yoga classes or whatever, which will try and appease the workers a bit more. But really, organizations have responsibility to do something about it and make sure all workers work in a safe environment is, is certainly my opinion so it's difficult it's really difficult when people are trying to be productive and driven by economic issues but you've got to balance it at the cost that it's costing you in uh, you know people leaving lost productivity and these huge uh, issues around the the uh, insurance premiums for their stress claims. they really need to do something about it you can't just keep burying your head in the
1: sand. And what's your message to organisations? Why should organisations change?
2: We work around the concept of decent work. So this is a worldwide issue about employing people in a decent way, in a decent work environment. So decent work involves several issues, but one of them is a safe working environment, uh, compassionate work, Doing enough work to push people, to grow people, but not too much to overwhelm them. So really, Lisa, the basis of of everything we do in our research is around providing a decent work environment. So I would say to organisations, if you don't think you have a decent work environment, yeah, it's going to cost you and really you need to do something about it. There's plenty of examples of organisations who do provide decent work. And that's where workers are going and that's where workers are staying. And
0: Paula, I'd add to that, that the, just because people are working from home or in hybrid mm. situations doesn't abdicate that responsibility. That's an environment that allows destructive leaders, leaders to even abuse even more behind, you know, out of sight, if you like. So organisations now have to think through more complexity around how do we keep our workers safe no matter what physical environment they're working in.
1: Are you picking up a trend towards this shift in culture towards more ethics, morals and health and wellbeing in employees?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. At the moment, because of the working from home issue and the hybrid model of working where we're now facing long term after COVID, work well-being. Has, has been a hot potato for years, a hot, hot topic for years, but now it's just gone crazy. So the requests, the calls for help, requests to come and work with people are, are just going through the roof. So work well being is just
0: huge at the moment. It is, but I think organisations need to realise that doesn't mean it's just a gym membership or a wellbeing mm-hmm. class, that it's so much more than that. And if you're going to take it seriously, they do need to think about the range of wellbeing initiatives they're going to introduce and measure how they're working.
1: And finally, what's your message for a destructive leader? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you right
0: now that if there's any destructive leaders listening, they won't be identifying themselves as such. So that's a bit of a hard one to get the message to land. But what I'd say to all leaders is pay attention to your shadow. What impact are you having? You may be well-intentioned, But what actually is your legacy? What's your shadow of the behaviours and the ways you're operating? Pay attention.
2: Mm, Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of leaders behave the way they do because they're lacking in confidence about exactly the best way to manage their people. So we found that providing extra knowledge, extra training, extra confidence in these leaders then has a positive impact on the way they behave to their team members.
1: Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. Professor Paula Bruff and Dr. Vicky Webster. This episode was produced by Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leon. Love your work.